This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now Alex Cortez brings us the story of the unlikely winner of the 1992 America's Cup, the top sailing competition in the world. He's an entrepreneur with 1,300 employees, and his name is Bill Koch. Bill Koch is a character. Well, I've done some outrageous things, and I've been severely criticized from some of my opponents because, see, I only started sailing competitively when I was in my early 40s, and I was going into it at the age 50, and most of the guys in it are young, and they all looked at me and said, you know, this guy's a hick, (laughs) and he's an idiot. (laughs) buffoon. (laughs) I had a scrapbook made afterwards and there were something like uh, 40,000 articles written about us of which 35,000 were negative. Uh, The 5,000 that were (laughs) after we won were positive. See I got my doctor's degree in fluid flow from MIT. The problem with the yacht designers is that they are 80% artists and 20% scientists. And they will draw a boat, they think it looks fast and is beautiful. But if it's slow, it's the crew's fault. So what I did is I got a professor at MIT, a guy who was a genius in nautical engineering, and I said, all right, what we're gonna do is set up a program on how to make the boat go fast, and we're gonna pick 30-some different yacht designers and We're going to look at their ideas, and then we're going to test them. See, the the technology in sailing stopped with the introduction of the steam engine. No one really understood the real science of sailing. So I said, we're going to dig into that. You know, we built the fastest boat, and we went out and won the world championships in it. Everybody said, God, that's a rocket ship. And that got the interest of the defending America's Cup champion, Dennis Conner. A dentist came up to me and said, Bill, well, I'd really like for you to give money to my campaign and give me your technology. And I said, well, what's in it for me? He said, well, you can have breakfast with the crew. And I said, why should I do that? Why should I finance someone else's ego trip? I said, I could do it myself. <laughs> and that's how Bill Koch, the relative rookie, got into the America's Cup accidentally. We were all fussing about names, and one guy hired a name consultant to come in and went through a whole day of picking up names and voting and all that kind of crap. And then we finally settled on Alliance America. I was thinking about it, oh, that's a stupid name. And I started thinking about what I was advocating was America Cubed to the power of three. See, because it shows America being extremely powerful exponentially powerful, say so. And it was a scientific nerd term, you know? (laughs) When I was studying the America's Cup, I said, well, there's three things that are very interesting out of this study. The first was, slow boats don't win, only fast boats. When I told that to Ted Turner, the founder of CNN and fellow America's Cup competitor, 
he just laughed at me and said, you give me a slow boat, I'll outsail the other son of a <laughs> And I said, boat speed is a science. Then the second thing was, the team that wins is the one that makes fewer mistakes, not the one that's most brilliant. And I said, well, that's practice, 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 and putting the right guys in the right spot. And then I said, the third thing is, uh, you got to do everything well. Have the right food for the crew, the right clothes, the right shoes so you don't slip on the deck, all that kind of stuff. And it was a very good management program. But the perception on how to win the America's Cup is you had to hire a super skipper, and then you could win. But Bill's hiring process was radically different for the skipper and the entire team. We rated everybody in the three categories from zero to 10. Attitude, teamwork, and sailing ability. To get on the boat, we said, you either gotta have nines or tens in two categories, and then it's teamwork and attitude. And we recruited three of the very best sailors in the world. They rated 10 in sailing abilities, but one twos in attitude and teamwork. For example, when the boat came in at night, everybody had to clean it and put it to bed, took the sails down, wash them all off, clean the boat, etc. Took about an hour, two hours to do it. But the superstars would walk away, go to a bar or pontificate. If we were out sailing and one of these superstars made a mistake, they'd blame it on someone else and yell and scream and swear. Destroying morale, everything else. In fact, one of the superstars tried to have a mutiny to throw me off the boat. He wanted to be a hero and be the captain or the skipper of it. When I found out about it, I said, you're, you're retired. <laughs> I said, you don't measure up. I cut the three stars, and then I put two guys on the boat who had never sailed before. What we said is that a guy who has a good attitude and a good team player, it's far easier to train him to be a good sailor than it is to take a superstar and train him to be a good team player. You can't do that, because he's not open <laughs> to improvements. They know everything. And so I said, you know, you don't need superstars. The boat is the ego. The boat is the star. And if we win, we're all stars. And we've been listening to Bill Koch, an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and winner of the 1992 America's Cup, the top sailing competition in the world. We're hearing a story about leadership, too, and about some things that, well, I think we all know, but, well, it's hard to put into practice. That superstar effect of looking for that star to save the team when so often the star can destroy the team. And Bill learned a lot of his life lessons while playing basketball at MIT with a coach who really know how to build teams and turn the team into the star. When we come back, more from Bill Koch, this remarkable story about an iconoclast and an outsider coming into this very competitive world of sailing. Here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories and Bill Koch's story of competing in the 1992 America's Cup and the sailing world calling him a hick, an idiot, a buffoon, and a nutty chemist from Kansas. We practiced six days a week. We started at six in the morning and we finished about nine at night. And I was out there for a year and a half doing all that stuff. We took off three or four days for Thanksgiving. And then we took one day off for Christmas. I think we sailed on New Year's Day. <laughs> but you got to put the time in, time on the water. Dennis Connor would say to his crew, you got to be committed to the commitment. His crew would say, you got to be committed for being committed to the commitment. We were having a very important practice day against another boat. Well, one guy took the weekend off to go to a wedding. And I said, okay, which is more important, going to the wedding or winning the America's Cup? If you're not going to do that, you're going to be on the second team. And we practiced so hard that actually race day was a fun day. We hired a real Irishman who was the best Irish sailor probably ever. He'd been in a couple of America's Cup and totally irreverent, had a great sense of humor and very smart. And he came over and he brought about three judges and a couple of other sailors to give us some competition. So he'd get in one boat and we'd be in the others. And then I took the guy into my office, his name was Harold Cudmore. And I said, well, Harold, tell me an assessment of my program. He said, well, I've never seen anything like that. It's extremely well organized and you're doing so many different things all at the same time, it's, it's overwhelming. So I said, all right, would you give me a, an appraisal of me? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, Bill, uh, <laughs> you're dangerously <laughs> unskilled. <laughs> or you're dangerously limited. <laughs> And I looked at him and I said, well, uh, you're the only person around here telling me the truth. Would you be my coach? So I hired him as a coach. <laughs> and he was extremely helpful. And Bill was also blunt about a less gentlemanly factor to winning the America's Cup. The dirty tricks of the America's Cup. The human side of it. <laughs> and my policy there was we searched the law and we found that if anything was in the ocean, you could go spy on it. So everybody thought that the keel was the, the holy grail. Actually, it wasn't. There were some other things that were important about it, what made a boat go fast. But we would hire skin divers to go down and spy on people's other keels at their harbor. We almost got caught spying on Dennis Connor. And uh, there was a scene where the guys were jumping in the water and trying to stab the guy. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, he was an ex-Navy SEAL, so he swam away. So we said, okay, we're not gonna do that. Then we found another way to do it. There's a law that says, if you put anything in the trash out in your driveway, that's public property. So I looked at it and said, let's go around and pick up all the garbage from all the different syndicates. And we did. 
the stuff that we got was phenomenal. We got business plans, you know, budgets, the whole thing. But the thing we got, which was the cleverest, is we got the, uh, the bills from a shop up in LA that was making keels for everybody. Everybody was using that same shop. So I looked at that and said, I'll tell you what, I took a guy that wanted to do some work for us, but he was a little boisterous and the guys didn't want to work with him. So I said, here's a job for you. Go up there, because you got a boat, don't you? And he said, yes. Don't you have a broken keel? And he said, yes, he did. I mean, that was all true. So I said, why don't you go up to this keel shop and look it over and see if they could talk about making a keel for you. And he said, fine, he did that. So he walked up there and, um, and he said, show me around your, your keel shop. And he did. And then they walked outside to see these keels that were, see, because they were pouring them in hot lead and having to put the fin into it. So he walked around, they said, oh, that's Dennis Connors keel over there. Oh, that's the Japanese keel. Oh, that's the Italian teal. And the guy said, oh, great. Uh, would you mind if I took pictures of these? Oh, no, go right ahead. Would you mind if I put a ruler by beside it? Yeah, go ahead. So we got copies of everybody's keels. <laughs> and, and we took it back and they brought it back. And I said, you know, this is very good knowledge. I'll tell you why. We've already tested all these keels, so we know how bad they are. So that gave me great confidence in the keel we had because we'd done so much testing on it, see, and experimenting on it. <laughs> and then <laughs> I'll tell you another funny thing. One of the guys that was helping us was an ex-Israeli guy. He became a PI in the United States and he would let hint out that he was in the Mossad. I don't think he was, but you know, it helped his business. And uh, you know, he said, I got an idea. What we're gonna do is we're gonna buy a fishing boat and we'll blacken all the windows on it and we'll put an underwater telescope on it, like a periscope. And what we'll do is we'll put a guys with fat bellies on it with fishing poles and we'll drive out as the boats are being towed out to where the practice area was. Said it took an hour to tow us out. So he said, we'll take this boat alongside and we'll throw beer cans over to the guys on the crew. And then we'll film how the water's going over their keels and get a good description of the keels. Well, uh, it turned out that everybody saw, you know, he was always talking about how he's a Mossad guy and everything. And everybody was saying, oh my God, you know, that's Bill Koch's spy boat. I said, oh my God, everybody knows the boat. Also, it's all fake. I mean, they said, oh no, no, let's try something. So we put all kinds of antennas on it, painted black or something, and we made it all geared up. And then what we did really uh, was to make a joke about it. And one time we were driving out and we were following Dennis's boat had a big tow boat and the boat falling behind. And the head of operations for Dennis, he was sitting on playing solitaire on a computer. And the guys looked at him through the binoculars and saw what he was doing. And they called him up and said, I wouldn't play the three here, I'd play it over there. 
They said, my God, they could read our computers. And so everybody, the word spread out that they read computers, so they were all putting tinfoil around their computers thinking we could read them. <laughs> and another time, uh, this boat was out measuring current and wind speed, and it got in the way of the Italian boat that was coming around the mark. And the guy who was head of the Italian team, Paul Kayard, who was an American, he was madder than hell. So I called him up to apologize. And God, did he at me and swear at me. And so I came down and told our guys, uh, God, I called up to apologize to this guy, and he just uh, ringed me out, etc. And one guy said, we're getting to his head. So what we're going to do is we're going to have that boat follow him all day long. We're going to have it right off his dock and follow him all day long. And we got to his head so bad that he told me two years later that he called up Raul Gardini, the guy who was funding all this, and asked for a 24-hour guard to protect him because he thought we were going to put a hit on him. And we got to his head, and actually, it was pretty interesting that the New York Times said spy versus spy out there, and they had a picture of our boat, and they called it the Darth Vader boat. So our guys went out there in our Darth Vader costumes. <laughs> but that was real fun. And you can tell everyone here is laughing in the studio. And that's the nature of competition. As long as you're not breaking the rules, anything goes and you want to win. And my goodness, getting inside your opponent's head. Well, that's half the game. I, I recall you know, hearing stories about Sam Walton always going to his competitors' stores, looking around, shopping around. You know, this is what we do here in this great country is we love to compete as long as it's fair, as long as both sides are playing by the rules. When we come back... More of this iconoclast, the entrepreneur, philanthropist, and winner of the 1992 America's Cup, Bill Koch. And my goodness, his ideas about team building, about hard work, about making fewer mistakes. I love that he said, the team that wins makes the fewest mistakes. Slow boats don't win and do everything well. Three simple rules to live by sailing and in so many other aspects of our lives. More Bill Koch's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories in the final portion of Bill Koch's story. And by the way, that he picked up sailing, so many of us, the real joys of our life and the real joys of our lives are our hobbies, our passions, our special interests. And that's where our truest selves often come out. Let's continue and conclude Bill Koch's story. At one time, when there was a lot of press about how I shouldn't be on the boat, you know, nutty chemist, clown, et cetera, et cetera. I walked into the crew meeting, because we had meetings after every practice. So we'd analyze every mistake. Saying if the guy didn't get up and confess to his mistake, 
you know, then he got, <laughs> he was close to getting cut, you know, because I said, you got to admit your mistake. You got to <laughs> own it and teach everybody else what it was. So you wouldn't do it again. But I walked in with a bullseye painted on my back of my shirt and said, well, you guys are very lucky you had me. And I turned around and showed him, I said, they're not shooting arrows at you, they're shooting arrows at me. <laughs> and then I said, well, I have three reasons I'm gonna be on this boat. I said, the first reason is, you know, I did win a world championship. I'm not the best sailor in the world, but I'm not the worst, but I'm good enough to, to be here. Then I said, the second is, if I'm putting up all the money for this, I'm gonna do what I damn well please. And then I said, thirdly is, I'll tell you a story. There was this uh, a Mexican bandit who robbed about 20 banks in Texas, and they couldn't catch him. So they finally got their best Texas Ranger and he tr tracked him for six months. And then he found him in his village in Mexico and he handcuffed him to a tree. But the Texas Ranger could barely speak Spanish and the Mexican could only say, hold up, give me your money. Uh, and so he went into the local town and he found a banker who'd gone to the Harvard Business School. And he asked the guy, would you come out and translate? He said, sure, be happy to. So he brought the banker out and said, well, he asked Amanda his name. He asked him and he said, yeah, his name is Jose. He said, would well, you ask Jose where he hid the money? And he asked Jose and Jose shook his head and said, no, he's not gonna tell you. So the ranger pulled out his 44, stuck it in the bandit's ear, cocked it back, said, now ask the SOB where he hid the money. I'm gonna blow his brains all over this yard. And so the uh, banker translated all that and Jose started crying and said, I, I have such an extended family, I have to stay alive. I can't help it and that's why I had to go and rob all these banks. <laughs> but I can't die here, they're all dependent upon me. I hid the money in the town well. And then the banker looks up to the Texas Ranger with tears in his eyes and says, Jose said he's not afraid to die. So I said, I don't need a translator. If I'm on the boat, I can see what's going on. <laughs> We're losing to Dennis Connor. And I called a, a crew meeting beforehand. And I gave him what I call a come to Jesus session. Uh, and I said, okay, you guys, we're out here to win. That's the only reason we're here. And we're not winning. And I said to the navigator, you stop calling tactics. That's not your job. Talk to another guy. I said, uh, you're not supposed to yell. And then I talked to Buddy. Their 62-year-old helmsman. I said, Buddy, you drive the damn boat. You're not to call tactics. You're not to tell everybody what to do on the boat. That's your job. You do it. Uh, and I just reamed them all out. Then we got on the boat and there was great tension. And a couple of guys and David Rosso and another guy jumped off a, a huge platform we had there in the water to try to break it. And we got in the race. We lost our again. So I said, I'll have another come to Jesus talk, but this time I'll do it differently. So I brought the afterguard, which are captains of different parts of the boat. I brought about four guys over to my house, including Buddy. 
and we started talking. I brought out some good wine, and I tried to low-key it, and the tactician, David Dellenbaugh, starts saying, well, the wind did this, the wind did that. The navigator said, well, Bill, after this, we all ought to be friends. I hope we can all be friends, etc." And Buddy was sitting in a corner kind of pouting. And then he said, well, uh, I had a cob up my rear end uh, after Bill gave the talk. And so I was mad. And then he said, but what Bill was really saying, that each guy has to do his own job, and we're going to do ours and rely upon each other. So I'm going to calm down. I'm going to drive the boat fast. Then we'll go out and win. That was amazing because then we went out and just killed Dennis. I said later, when Buddy put his ego below the ego of the boat, I said, we're going to win. We're going to beat everybody else. And then in the America's Cup, when we got into it, the second race, we lost. I lost by a microsecond or something. And I said, well, okay, I'm going to have another come to Jesus talk. And I'll do it very carefully now. I'm not going to criticize anybody. And we were sat in this room. And Buddy said, well, I want to run the meeting. And I said, no, Buddy, I'm going to run it, you know. I'm the skipper here, I'm the CEO, I'm gonna run it. And he and I had about a three minute back and forth. And finally he said, Bill, I made 24 mistakes out of the 25 mistakes we made. I said, okay, buddy, you run the meeting. <laughs> and he went through all of his mistakes. And I said, that's fantastic that to get for this Super athlete, super sailor, one of the best in the world. If he could talk about his mistakes, that was fantastic. So I said, uh, right, let him talk. <laughs> and this team won the America's Cup. America's Cup, first of all, is a race of technology. Secondly, it's a race of teamwork. Thirdly, it's a management race. And finally, it's only a sailboat race. But all those other things, you, and Dennis Connors say, you win it on shore, you don't win it on the ocean. Afterwards, I said, you know, I don't want to do it again, because I'd spent a, a whole bunch of money on it. And I said, the probability is, the very best I could do is go sideways, and I'd probably go down because we didn't have the same drive that we did when we started. You know, we were underdogs, we were nerds, we were everything else, so, you know, we really put out the effort. But then everybody who were wanting to do the next America's Cup all came to me asking to get my equipment. I said, well, I'll sell it to you. I said, oh no, we want you to give it to us, plus giving us some money. And so I said, well, I can't sell this stuff. Uh, Maybe is there a way I could get some good out of it? And so I said, it'd be really fun to put an all-women's team out there and thumb my nose at the, the establishment that were thumbing their nose at me. <laughs> <laughs> and they sure did, losing to champion Dennis Connor by only one race and essentially finishing fourth against a world of men.
And you can just hear the joy and the delight, particularly of listening to humans take ownership for their mistakes, building a team, and just the joy of competing at a high level. You've been listening to Bill Koch, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and winner of the 1992 America's Cup. And my goodness, it doesn't go unnoticed that they called him a hick, an idiot, a buffoon, and a nutty chemist from Kansas. And yet, defying all odds, putting together a great team, keeping the superstar diva off the team. Again, something he learned from an MIT basketball coach as a young man, and it stayed with him forever. Those life lessons, the sooner we learn them, the better, folks. Bill Koch's story, and that's why we bring you these stories, a leadership story in the end, not just a sailing story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fassbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on?' "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your Grandma Sylvia.' "'He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me. "'leaning his warm body against my arm. "'He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. "'Who will that be to me?' "'He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago.' "'Max shrugged and resumed his ball-tossing. "'I already got a grandfather,' he said, not unkindly. "'Lots of kids have two grandpas. "'I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather.' "'Hmm.' Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. 
I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. What about them? he asked, pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners. But I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet! he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. Whoa! he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind, 
like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling? he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, I notice I don't call you Mom. I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker and four fingers to lick. When I say Betsy, I mean Mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud, 
I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner? And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story. Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org And now it's time for our Rule of Law series where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And now Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a music producer in Nashville, Tennessee, who was shut down by the local government. What does Disney, Hewlett-Packard, Apple, Microsoft, Dell, Amazon, Google, and Harley-Davidson all have in common? They all started at home. 69% of entrepreneurs start their businesses at home, and there are 38 million of them across the United States. It's generating big money of $427 billion per year. Take our guest Liz Shaw, for example, a music producer who moved to Nashville in 1991. And Lidge is actually short for Elijah, and uh, it's easy to remember because Lidge rhymes with fridge because I'm cool like that, which is terrible, but now you won't forget. <laughs> Lidge has recorded with performers like John Oates, Jack White, Wilco, Adele, and the Zac Brown Band. He calls his Grammy Award-winning studio the Toy Box Studio. And it all started when his uncle showed him a few chords on the guitar. You know, for me, music was um, something that was definitely part of my family growing up. It wasn't like I really came from a big musical family necessarily. You know, my mom and my dad, my mom was a, an artist, a painter, and my dad was an um, international banker and, and really loved history. But both of them really had an appreciation for music, and so I, you know, I grew up in, um, for the first six years, five years of my life in Brooklyn, New York. So, of course, I was seeing and being influenced by a lot of music. Um, But it really was not something that I considered very seriously until just before my 18th birthday in high school. And that summer, I remember picking up a guitar at our summer house, and my uncle showed me my first three chords. He was like, well, here's the three chords you need to know, um, Lidge, if you want to you know, be able to play a song. Just know the E chord, the A chord, and the B7 chord, and, and then everything's good to go. And so I learned those chords, and I remember coming back after that summer trip. My dad actually bought me a guitar for my birthday, and it, so I'm, I was just like banging out these three chords I knew 
uh, all night in my in my room in the house, and my stepdad would even come in and you know, Lidge, it's one o'clock in the morning. You need to you need to pipe down. So it was like a Sears and Roebuck classical guitar that was actually. I think it was broken on the front or something. It was a little bit beat up, but it still sounded great and was good enough for me. When I went off to college to go study architecture, I, you know, I heard some guitars being strummed from down the hallway in the dorm room, and I just went knocking on the, you know, knocking on my neighbor's door in the dorm room, and I was like, "Hey, man, you guys playing guitar? You know, I play guitar," <laughs> and and that sort of sparked friendships and. I saw people writing songs and having fun with it for the first time. And, you know, it just took me another four or five years before I finally realized that this is what I really love to do and and decided to go to school for it. I actually found a school called MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University. And this is back in 1991. They had just built a wonderful recording program here. Um, It was like the big new building on campus. Now, you know, um, 30 years later almost, it's like the teeny building that's hard to find surrounded by much bigger buildings. Um, But I came down to Nashville, and I didn't know anything about uh, music professionally. I didn't know... Um, I didn't even know Nashville was really a music city, quote unquote. I knew, you know, I only learned later that it was like New York, uh, Los Angeles and Nashville was like the middle coast for making music. I just knew that there was a good school here and that making records was what I really wanted to do. So I came on down here and spent a couple of years in college and got a second bachelor's degree, this time a bachelor's of science in recording engineering I did the recording program, and then, you know, the logical next step was to get an internship at a studio. Um, and, of course, I, uh, Murfreesboro, where the school is, is a little about, about half an hour south of Nashville. So I got an internship in a studio up here in Nashville and started coming up and, you know, seeing what it looked like to be in a professional studio. It was a beautiful place called Woodland Studios, which is still here in East Nashville and is now owned by uh, Gillian Welch and Dave Rollins. And they do um, some wonderful music. You know, they had done the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And come from that kind of old school appreciation of music. While I was doing my internship, I, um, you know, saw a bunch of different records come in. Most of them were country records. You know, there was this new artist that came in called Keith Urban, and he came in to make a record. Um, Emmy Lou Harris came in to make a record. She did Wrecking Ball, and I met Daniel Lenoir in person, um, who's you know an incredible producer and, and has worked with U2 and Peter Gabriel and done all kinds of great records, Bob Dylan. And so I saw these great records happening, um, and then these two guys came in, and they were doing a really kind of a very different sounding record from one of the other studio rooms. Door was open, and I kept hearing all this cool music come out, and it was an artist named uh, Jill Sobule, who's still a brilliant songwriter and making great records today. Um, but they had this record with uh, a single that came out called I Kissed a Girl, which was actually the original version of that song a decade before Katy Perry had her big hit in the 2000s. Um, and I just remember I met, I met these guys that were producing the album and they would come out to the lounge and have coffee and I, I'd get a chance to meet them. And they seemed real cool. And I finished my internship and then I was sort of like, you know, didn't know what I was going to do next. I ended up going by the record store one day and I see the, the finished album, Jill Sobule, 
on the shelves and I listened to it and I was like, oh my God, this, this record's brilliant. So I found out what the studio was and I actually called them up uh, just getting the number out of the Yellow Pages and they, the producers answered the phone and invited me to come get my first job making records over there. Um, and this is a place called Alex the Great across town in Berry Hill. From a passion of music to figuring out how to do that for a living. From paying his internship dues to a paying job in the recording business, Liz Shaw is about to live out his dream. That is until the local government gets involved. And we'll continue with Lidge Shaw's story. And what a story it is here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends. And follow us on Facebook at Our American Network. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Lyd Shaw a record producer who, as you're about to hear, was shut down by his local government. Here again is Jesse Edwards with this unbelievable story from Nashville, Tennessee. When we left off, Liz had gone from a dreamer to a doer. After realizing his dream of being a music producer was in reach, he went back to school, went through an internship, and landed a paying gig in the industry. All at a time, when analog was out, and digital was in. And so I started to see a lot of, I guess, like sort of like the birth of home studios uh, in a way there. This was a commercial facility, but they were able to build a recording studio and make records with super affordable gear, the same kind of gear that was available for people who wanted to start home studios and, you know, DIY Uh, musicians and artists that wanted to record their own records using tools like ADATs, which were these um, digital tape recorders that would use video cassettes to record the music on, VHS cassettes. And so it made it really affordable to start making records. And it's before computers were introduced. And so they built a studio with this, and then they had, you know, an affordable mixer called a Mackie mixer. And I just really got excited about the kind of music and the kind of people and the kind of bands and artists that I was seeing come through the studio there. And simultaneously, all through the rest of the 90s and and into the 2000s, we had this global introduction of the home studio as an alternative to, you know, the, the big kind of expensive commercial studio. And there were tons of producers engineers, bands, artists that were all just embracing this new technology with computers becoming more and more affordable and more powerful. Now you could buy, you know, a Macintosh computer from the store or a PC, set it up in a spare room in your house and plug in, you know, a cable to have a little interface, plug in a couple of mics and bam, you've got what basically sounded pretty close to a professional recording studio right in your own home. So I saw all these people doing that and building studios around Nashville inside homes. And I thought, you know, this is really for me. I really love doing independent music. I love working with local artists. Um, You know, I still want to, you know, have a big 
award one day working with a major label artist as well but this seems like really the avenue to be able to focus on the art that i love about making music and not be totally just kind of drawn into the big commercial corporate machine for making music and so that really appealed to me and i remember probably around 97 or so I decided, 98 maybe, I decided that I wanted to have a five-year plan. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I want to have my own home recording studio. That's sort of my five-year goal. You know, have a home, have a studio, be able to wake up, grab your coffee in the morning, go straight into the studio and start making records. And that's exactly what Liz did. He bought a house in Nashville where he could build a professional soundproof studio. It had a a well-sealed basement. In fact, that was one of the first things I did is I called up a buddy of mine, um, uh, Ken Coomer, who played drums with Wilco at the time. And he came over and did me a huge favor. And I just said, dude, will you, will you do me a favor? I want to, I want to buy this house and I want to make sure that I can record in it, but I want to make sure I don't bother the neighbors. Will you just beat the crap out of your snare drum down in the basement? And I'm going to go walk around the house and see if I can hear it. And so he, he did that for me. Thank you, Ken. And, um, you know, I walked around and it was like, wow, that's, this is perfect. Liz Shaw invested thousands of dollars to build his award-winning studio. And this isn't your friend's closet that was converted into a so-called podcast studio either. This studio kept his bills paid and his passion alive. And then... I've made records happily and successfully for a decade before the city sent me a letter in 2015 that said you have to cease and desist being the toy box studio and operating as a commercial studio in a residence. A man's livelihood shut down over a code violation. If you're zoned residential, you can get permission to work from home or have you know a home occupancy permit, but you're not allowed to have a customer or a client come over to your house. And that applies to everybody who's doing anything in Nashville. If you're a nice little old lady in the neighborhood and you want to teach piano to the other kids in the neighborhood, that's not legal according to the Nashville um, Codes Ordinance. But the nightmare was just beginning. For simply operating a successful home business in Nashville, Tennessee, Liz Shaw was now facing home inspections, warrants, and even censorship. So I got the cease and desist letter, and then it said I had, I think, 30 days to be in compliance. And so that was it was that 30 days of not sleeping, talking to people, um, figuring out what to do, having an interview in the local newspaper. And then I got a call a month later from the city codes inspector, and she said, you know, okay, are you ready to schedule an inspection? And I said, what do you mean schedule an inspection? Um, I got your letter. I'm trying to be in compliance. You know, help help clarify what that means and help me understand so that I can, can you know, be in compliance because this is my home. This is where I live. I have a home studio. This is what That's what I do. And she said, well, we need to come do a walkthrough inspection and confirm that you've removed all recording equipment from the premises. <laughs> and I was just like, whoa, slow down. You know, this is my home. This is where I live. I can't do that. You know, I can't just move on. I mean, what am I going to do? Uh, this is this is my home. And so she um, said, well, let me check. I'll check with the, the supervisor. And she called back a little bit later. And this is the actual audio of the chilling voicemail that the county official left. Hi, this is 
with the Coast Department. I just checked with our zoning administrator, and he did say you don't have to remove your equipment. But if any, if there are any further complaints about uh, the use of this property as a recording studio for anyone other than you, and that does include your podcast, then we will go uh, straight to a warrant and obtain a court order. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, I don't want somebody knocking on my door and throwing me in handcuffs in front of my daughter just because I'm trying to make records. So what do you do in a situation like that? Thousands of dollars, a decade of work, regular income, realized dreams, gone. How do you react? First thing you do is freak out. Um, I remember just being in a state of shock. I don't think I slept for a week. I didn't even know if I wanted to tell anybody yet because I was thinking... You know, it's a devastating thing to be told to stop working when the work you do is the very thing that feeds you and feeds your family and pays your bills and keeps a roof over your head. Uh, But I knew I needed to be able to have supportive friends and family. So, you know, I finally started talking to a couple of friends about it. Um, So I did an interview in the Tennessean newspaper, which I believe got front page um, right around Thanksgiving that year. And that just seemed to generate quite a lot of interest, um, you know, and quite a lot of passionate defense of this whole issue. Keith Diggs from the Institute of Justice reached out to me, and we had a phone call and began talking about the issue. And, you know, he really expressed interest in um, coming to my aid and, and, and defending me and, you know, maybe talking about ways that we could do something about this case, uh, because it really was at the core of the Institute for Justice's cause and mission statement. And it was shortly after that, too, that uh, Braden Busek reached out to me from the Beacon Center here in Nashville. And same thing, that was also at the core of their mission statement, is to find people and help defend um, property rights, economic liberties, and, you know, constitutional liberties for people right here in Tennessee. You know, I couldn't even afford to do anything about this. It just it seemed astronomical to try and defend myself um, and hire a lawyer for something that just seemed so uh, hard to figure out in the first place. After talking to the Institute for Justice and then talking to the Beacon Center, I thought, well, if you guys are really good at what you do and you're really good at what you do and we all want a, the same end result, why don't we just all work together? So that um, sort of sparked an idea for us to just meet simultaneously, which we did, and everybody seemed to be on the same page, and um, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I feel very fortunate that such a bad thing could happen to me, but in the end, such a good thing could happen that all of a sudden I end up with this, you know, incredible legal team coming to my my aid to try and help out on this issue, Um, and I like to refer to them now as the League of Justice. Thanks to the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, Liz Shaw stands a fighting chance of getting his livelihood back. But he still has a long way to go in the courts. And when we continue, we'll hear more of Lyd Shaw's story. But he's got the Institute for Justice on his side, a band of legal litigators that, my goodness, defend property rights and property interests all over this country. Ordinary folks facing, well, let's just say extraordinary measures by their local, state, and national governments. When we continue more of Liz Shaw's story, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and we conclude now the story of Lyd Shaw, a music producer who was forced to close his small business by the local government in Nashville, Tennessee. And I just keep thinking about getting a call like that, a message left on your phone machine, no less. It's just so cold. Here again is Jesse Edwards. From a young musician with a dream to a professional producer at his successful home recording studio, which won a Grammy Award, Liz Shaw was shut down by his county government for operating a business in a residential zone. After being threatened with home inspections, arrest warrants, and having his equipment confiscated, Liz went to the press and found overwhelming support, not only from his community, but by legal groups like the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, who are helping him and other home-based business owners in the Nashville area get back to what they do for a living. It really feels so good to have that kind of support and have a team that's on my side. And more importantly, you know, one of the things that they really do um, that's helped me out tremendously is educate me and help me understand how, um, you know, I'm in a position of importance for, 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 you know, fighting this battle and how my needs are relevant and my rights as a citizen, as a homeowner, um, as a as a single dad, as a parent, those are all legitimate and real rights that really do need to be defended, um, you know, pretty pretty strongly, and are worth worth defending because I think it's very easy for us at times to just kind of you know cower down under under the oppression of being told you can't do something and just assume. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us assume that, that we must be doing something wrong if somebody told us that we're doing something wrong, and that may not be the case. And now it's time to fight back. But there are certain loopholes Liz and his legal team must jump through to proceed in this nightmarishly boring court. Nashville does allow a specific plan rezoning, SP rezoning of residential properties. It has allowed it, and it still does allow it. And so we realized we're going to need to go through that process first and apply for an SP rezoning before we can actually, you know, go to the next level. And in other words, that's the first thing to try. So we went through that whole process throughout the entire year of 2017, which involved uh, finding actually a local land use attorney and filed for rezoning that had to go in front of the planning commission for approval. Um, it got disapproved. Then, you know, we went through this whole process and, and, and I think there were a few different times we had to go up and to city codes for my rezoning application to be heard. And on the final one, it was a very long city council meeting and they spent quite a long time deliberating over some um, short-term rental issues, basically the, the Airbnb topic here. And then they finally put mine up for vote when everybody was just dying to go home and it voted so fast, and they um, there were 14 yeses from city council members, um, and they had really talked about this stuff um, quite at length, and everybody seemed to agree that at the core of what I was trying to do, it was okay and should be allowed, but they just couldn't quite agree on how the city should, you know, what the process was for allowing it. And so then 20 city council members voted no, Therefore, it didn't pass. It needs, I think, a two-thirds majority for an SP rezoning. Hitting that brick wall of bureaucracy, Lige 
The Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville with a co-plaintiff. My co-plaintiff is Pat Rayner, who is a retired hairstylist. She's been doing hair for clients for her whole life and their lives, and she just wants to be able to continue to support herself in her retirement because she can't stop working. She's already 69 years old, and she just wanted to be able to continue to cut hair for those clients out of her home, and she also got shut down by the city. Um, So we teamed up with the law firm's and filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville defending our constitutional right to be able to continue working from our home and support ourselves and support our family and pay our bills and, you know, make an honest living. We're basing our entire lawsuit on defending our constitutional right under the Tennessee Constitution to be able to make an honest living from our homes and that specifically there's a discrimination going on by the city of Nashville, by Davidson County, by Metro, in saying, we're going to allow some people to have home businesses and see clients like home daycares, neighborhood daycares. We already allow um, short-term rentals. We, you know, People can put up Airbnbs. In fact, you know, on, on a limited scale now, um, people are able to put up Airbnbs and have short-term rental property, even if they don't live there as a landlord. And um, there are properties that are rezoned, have been traditionally, uh, were just again this year for historical rezoning, which basically says, you know, we're going to recognize this property as being of historical significance. And with that, it means that you can operate as a commercial business out of this location and you can have customers and clients come over and, you know, do things like have events or have an operating business and that sort of thing. Um, all of which sound like per- perfectly reasonable uh, use cases for allowing a home business. You know, obviously we need daycares. Um, people do need to be able to have a place to sleep in a town that's affordable. And I think that people should be able to make a room or make their house available for somebody to rent on a short-term basis if it's a positive thing. And of course, we want to we want to upkeep historical locations and properties all across the city because that's how you keep the, the heart and the spirit of the city. But at the same time, it's an infringement and a discrimination uh, against us, it's an infringement of our constitutional right to be able to also do that. You know, everybody who wants to be able to support themselves from their home, particularly home studios, because there's lots all over Nashville, um, hairstylists like like Pat's, uh, like like her home, that should be allowed as well. And it's not fair if the city says, hey, you can't do it. Everybody else can, but you can't do it. Liz Shaw is continuing his fight in the courts as we speak. And we will follow up once a judge has reached a conclusion as to whether or not he can be allowed to conduct business in the privacy of his own home. Despite all the drama, he hasn't lost his love for Nashville. He's staying and fighting for everyone else who wants to run their own business from their house. When I finished school and I was, you know, first thinking about where I wanted to live, my first thought was I'm going to go back to St. Louis where my friends are and my last band was. And, you know, you know that's where I want to go make records. And it was that process of seeing people who were really serious and professional about making music and the art of recording music here that made me realize, oh, wait a minute, Nashville's a great place to be. 
And, you know, it's this wonderful place that has a real, like, it's it's a real growing metropolis, but it's always had kind of a small town feel in a lot of ways. I mean, it's also a place where you could still find a home that you could afford, and maybe you've got some green grass and a yard, and, you know, maybe you can make music in your your home studio, and it's not going to bother anybody because, for one, I mean, my studio's soundproofed, so literally not going to bother anybody. But also, on you know, at, at the core of being in Music City is that people who live here love music, so therefore they just, you know, they want to hear more of it, not less of it. To visit Liz Shaw's Toy Box Studio online, check out all that he does at thetoyboxstudio.com. You can hear the music he mixes, check out his podcast, and send him some words of encouragement. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that, Jesse. And that story hits close to home. My sister and her husband worked a home studio in northern New Jersey and have a home studio in Los Angeles, California. And they do all of their business from their home. So many of us, so many more of us are doing the same. And I love that you heard a musician say, it's my constitutional right to be able to make an honest living in my home. Indeed it is. And thanks to IJ, Institute for Justice. What a group, if you care to, give them money because they're helping fight, well, fight laws that just make no sense. IJ.org is how you can help. Lid Shaw's story, a remarkable freedom story, property rights story, and rule of law story here on Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and we love telling stories from the great American literature canon and today we're bringing you another you've probably read Walt Whitman or at least you were supposed to in your high school English class but even if you've heard of Leaves of Grass you've probably never heard this tale that Hillsdale College professor Kelly Franklin brings us it was winter in 1862 and Americans were fighting our nation's civil war. In mid-December, the Union suffered a disaster at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The entrenched Confederates cut down wave after wave of Union soldiers, leaving the Northern Army with 13,000 casualties, more than double those of the Southern defenders. From the Union standpoint, things looked pretty bleak for the formerly United States of America. News of the casualties hit the papers right away, and on December 16th, the American writer Walt Whitman learned that his brother George had been wounded at Fredericksburg. With no other information, Whitman set out to find his brother. He searched the hospitals in D.C. with no luck until a friend lent him money and got him a pass to the front, where George, if he were still alive, might be found. Then, in Falmouth, Virginia, Whitman located his brother safe and sound with only a minor wound to his face. But Whitman also saw something else, something he never forgot. Outside a field hospital, Whitman saw a heap of amputated limbs, enough to fill a one-horse cart. Horrified, he wrote in his diary. At the foot of a tree, immediately in front, a heap of feet, legs, arms, and human fragments cut 
bloody, black and blue, swelled and sickening. By 1862, Walt Whitman had already achieved some fame and some notoriety as a poet that celebrated the human body. I am the poet of the body. He had written in his 1855 book, Leaves of Grass. And I am the poet of the soul. The man's body is sacred, and the woman's body is sacred. But in that grisly moment outside the field hospital, Whitman got his first real glimpse of the human cost of the Civil War. It wasn't long before he knew what he wanted to do about it. In January of 1863, Whitman returned to Washington, D.C., where he began perhaps the greatest undertaking of his life. While the war raged on, Whitman threw himself into the task of visiting the sick and wounded men, both Northerners and Southerners, who languished in the Civil War hospitals. The Union already had many doctors and nurses, but Whitman intuitively knew that people need more than medical treatment to get well. Companionship, comfort, morale boosting, even a kind word. And as a volunteer, Whitman could provide that to the soldiers. He worked a part-time job in the mornings and spent the afternoons and evenings in the hospitals. He talked with the men, sat with them. He brought a satchel full of little gifts, candy, clothes, fruit, money, tobacco, stamps, and paper for writing letters. When the weather was hot, he brought them ice cream. While in the hospitals, Whitman wrote down the names and descriptions of the soldiers in his notebooks, along with anything special they asked for. Henry Benton, Company E, 7th Ohio Volunteer, Ward K, Bed 44. Wants a little jelly and an orange. Wounded last Sunday at Chancellorsville in leg. I saw the bullet and a piece of the bone. Stout hardy Ohio boy. Henry Eberly, Bed 8, Ward K, Company H, 28th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Wants a German prayer book. Wounded in the left shoulder pretty bad. Not all of his visits were cheerful. Of a man named Hiram Johnson from the 157th New York Volunteers, Whitman wrote in his notebook, This is the bed of death. Although he supported the Union, Whitman left the politics of the war outside the hospital doors and treated the wounded equally. In his memoir of the Civil War, Whitman later described taking care of a 19-year-old boy from Baltimore whose right leg had been amputated. He writes, as I was lingering, soothing him in his pain, he says to me suddenly, I hardly think you know who I am. I don't wish to impose upon you. I am a rebel soldier. I said I did not know that, but it made no difference. Visiting him daily for about two weeks after that while he lived, death had marked him and he was quite alone. Many of these Civil War soldiers died far from family and home. Some of them even died unknown and unidentified. It was the era before dog tags and DNA testing. In March of 1864, Whitman described one of these cases in a letter to his mother. Whitman wrote of the arrival of a train carrying sick and wounded soldiers. Mother, it was a dreadful night, pretty dark, the wind gusty and the rain fell in torrents. One poor boy, he seemed to me quite young, he was quite small, he groaned some as the stretcher bearers were carrying him along, and again as they carried him through the hospital gate. They set down the stretcher and examined him, and the poor boy was dead. The doctor came immediately, but it was all of no use. The worst of it is, too, that he is entirely unknown. 
There was nothing on his clothes or anyone with him to identify him, and he is altogether unknown. Mother, it is enough to rack one's heart such things. Very likely his folks will never know in the world what has become of him. And many men died unknown in the war. Many were hastily buried or lost altogether in the chaos and aftermath of battle. This meant that families and friends were denied many of the rituals of grief. But Walt Whitman was also at the height of his career as a poet, and during the war he would write poems of grief and mourning that would help him and the nation express those terrible losses. Walt Whitman had worked with words and language for most of his life. Born on Long Island, he supported himself from a very young age, working at a printing shop, in a law office, and as a teacher. But he soon found his way to authorship, writing journalism, conventional poems, and fiction. Then, in 1855, Whitman published his experimental book, Leaves of Grass, which violated all the current norms of poetry and celebrated the full range of human life from democracy to sexuality, writing in powerful free verse about the body, the soul, nature, and city life, and the labors of working class men and women. But now, Whitman had a war to write about, and at the end of it, he published a book of war poems called Drum Taps. In one of his best poems, Vigil Strange, I kept on the field one night, Whitman recreates an imaginary moment of grief and burial for the fallen dead. The poetic speaker describes seeing a young soldier struck down in the heat of battle. Unable to stop, for the conflict rages on around them, the narrator charges ahead, but returns that night to keep vigil for a boy he calls both son and comrade. Long there and then in vigil I stood, dimly around me the battlefield spreading. Vigil wondrous and vigil sweet there in the fragrant silent night. The speaker stays with the body all night. Till at latest lingering of the night, indeed just as the dawn appeared, my comrade I wrapped in his blanket enveloped well his form, folded the blanket well, tucking it carefully overhead and carefully under feet. And there and then, and bathed by the rising sun, my son in his grave, in his rude dug grave, I deposited. Ending my vigil strange with that, vigil of night and battlefield dim, vigil for boy of responding kisses, never again on earth responding, vigil for comrade swiftly slain, vigil I never forget how as day brightened I rose from the chill ground and folded my soldier well in his blanket and buried him where he fell. Like in most of his poems, the soldier remains nameless, which means that he could be anyone, known or unknown, Yankee or rebel, any of the more than 600,000 men who perished in the war. Whitman continued to visit the hospitals on and off throughout the war. He once estimated that he had visited somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 soldiers. He also wrote that, after his time in the hospitals, the pages of his notebooks were actually stained with soldiers' blood. Walt Whitman would have a long and fruitful life and career as a writer, right up to his death in 1892. But he always thought about his hospital years as something central to his life. Those three years I consider the greatest privilege and satisfaction, and of course the most profound lesson of my life. Those years of hospital visits represent a tremendous act of service to his fellow Americans during a time of war. 
While we tend to remember him as one of America's great poets, Walt Whitman's sacrificial charity during the Civil War may be his greatest legacy. But we can also be thankful he was a writer, although he once claimed that the real war will never get in the books. Walt Whitman's diaries, letters, poems, and memoirs constitute a powerful eyewitness account, a moving record of one man's mind and heart during this bloody chapter in the story of American history. And great job on that, Robbie, and thank you to Hillsdale Professor Kelly Franklin for telling us about a great man and a part of his life so few people know. And how moving when that young man, a rebel soldier, said to him, I am a rebel soldier. And he said, I didn't know that, but it made no difference. And we should all be learning from that day to day in life that Whitman was there to just attend to the needs of the fallen. And Hillsdale College, by the way, this is, this is what you learn there, and this is why we work so carefully and closely with them and cultivate this kind of material for you and for your families. And if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu for their free and terrific online courses. Kelly Franklin's story, Walt Whitman's story, the story of the American Civil War in a way you hadn't heard it before. And by the way, in a nation of 31,600,000 fell, 31,600,000 dead. This is Our American Stories. 